0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Revelation, part two. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been talking about God's general revelation in nature and conscience. And I pointed out that general revelation serves a number of functions, which we want to continue to talk about today. The first function of general revelation is to reveal God's glory. In the marvelous universe around us, we see the majesty and the greatness of God revealed. And as a result of this, Paul says, secondly, that this renders all persons culpable before God. All persons are responsible to recognize God's existence. Based on his revelation in nature and his moral law and its demands upon them in light of the moral law implanted on their hearts. So, if we turn to Romans chapter 1, um, we read in uh, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And Then over in chapter 2, um, verse 15, Paul says that the Gentiles who do not have the law show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So, all persons are held uh, responsible for believing in an eternal, powerful creator of the universe and for recognizing the demands of his implanted moral law upon their lives. Now, the question would be then does this provide information about God that is sufficient for a person? to come not merely to a knowledge that God exists but to come to a saving knowledge of God? Is it possible through general revelation to come to know God in a redemptive way and not simply as the creator um, before whom one stands morally fallen and guilty? Well, this is a matter of considerable controversy. For example, uh, Jack Cottrell, in his book, "What the Bible says about God, the Creator," argues that the person of, or rather that the purpose of general revelation is to provide um, information about God's grandeur and power. It's not to provide redemptive knowledge of God, and therefore general revelation is not a source of redemptive knowledge. This is what Cottrell writes uh, on pages 342 and following of his book. The Bible nowhere teaches that a person can be saved from sin and condemnation through his response to the light of creation alone. General revelation simply does not give us any knowledge of redemption or of the Redeemer. Does this mean people are condemned on account of their ignorance? Not at all. This would be very unjust. True, they do not know the gospel, but they are not condemned for not knowing the gospel. Why then are they condemned? Because they do know general revelation and have not lived up to it. They do know God, and they do know that they should honor Him as God and give him thanks. But they do not do this. This is why they are condemned. Not because of what they are ignorant of, but because of what they know. That they have not heard the gospel is besides the point. When a person is condemned for his abuse of general revelation, the condemnation is just. He goes on to say, General revelation grows solely out of the work of creation. It is a revelation of God as creator, not God as redeemer. It speaks to man as creature, not to man as sinner. This is how it was intended to function from the beginning, and this is how it still functions. From the beginning, man has been able to respond either positively or negatively to this revelation. By responding positively man is able to avoid condemnation. By responding negatively man comes under God's just condemnation. The fact is that mankind uniformly responds negatively and thus all are without excuse. Does this mean then that general revelation has only a negative function? That it only damns and does not save. No, to put the question in this way is to renew the fallacy that such a revelation is not a function of creation, but is somehow, but rather somehow has an intended purpose for the post fall world. The point is that general revelation was not intended either to save, positive, or to condemn, negative. It was intended only for the positive purpose of declaring the glory of God the Creator and giving general guidance to the creature. So on Cottrell's view the purpose of revelation is simply to show forth the glory and the power of the Creator. It doesn't serve a redemptive purpose. Nevertheless, if a person shuns the light of general revelation that he has and uh, ignores God and plunges himself into immorality he is culpable and condemned before God because of his rejection of general revelation God will judge those who have never heard the gospel not on the basis of what they have done with Christ but rather what they've done with general revelation so in that sense general revelation serves to uh, or has the effect I should say of condemning people leaving them condemned before God but not saved. At the same time, however, did you notice that Cottrell says, by responding positively to general revelation, man is able to avoid condemnation. Now That is a very interesting admission. That puts a very different perspective on it. He says, by responding positively, man is able to avoid condemnation. Now, What that would suggest is that even if no one does in fact access saving knowledge of God through general revelation, nevertheless they could, it is possible, one is able to avoid condemnation by accessing or responding properly to God's general revelation in nature and in conscience. and I want to be clear about what this means. This does not mean that a person would be saved through his own good deeds or righteous living. It would rather be that he accesses the salvation which is wrought by Christ, but without having a conscious knowledge of Christ. The general revelation simply serves as a, ch- a channel by which he comes to a knowledge of God. And by his positive response to it, um, just as a positive response to the gospel brings salvation, so here it could help this person to escape condemnation. Now, in fact, I think there are some reasons to think that that is possible. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 7. Here again, Paul is speaking to those uh, who are apart from the Jewish law, non-Jews. And in verse 7 of chapter 2 he says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And I take this to be a bona fide offer on God's part. If someone will respond in a positive way to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, seeking God, and his glory, then God will give him eternal life. Does that mean that a person can be saved apart from Christ? No. It would simply mean that he would be saved without having a conscious knowledge of Christ. Now is that possible? Well, clearly that is possible because that's true of Old Testament saints. People like Abraham and Moses and King David never heard of Christ, and yet obviously they were saved only through Christ's atoning death. So the example of Old Testament um, believers shows us clearly that a person doesn't have to have a conscious knowledge of Christ in order to be a beneficiary of Christ's death. Now you might say, well, but they looked forward to Christ or they looked forward to the Messiah. Well, while that may have been true with respect to some of the prophets, That couldn't be said with regard to, for example, Abraham or some of the very early Jews where there weren't yet any messianic prophecies given at all. They were simply faithful to the revelation that God had given them. Now, could this apply to people who were not Jews? Well, again, the Old Testament, I think, gives us a clear answer to that question. Yes. There are certain figures in the Old Testament who are non-Jews and yet who clearly have a saving relationship with God. Sometimes these are known as the holy pagans of the Old Testament. Whom am I thinking about here? Well, I'm thinking, for example, of Job. Job was not a Jew. He was from Ur in Chaldea. And yet if anyone in the Old Testament had A proper relationship with God. It was Job. God refers to him as my righteous servant. Clearly, Job uh, knew God and was rightly related to him, even though Job was not a Jew. Another example, this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. You remember that Abraham met and then offered uh, sacrifices to. He was called the priest of the Most High God, King of Salem. He wasn't a Jew. He he wasn't obviously a descendant of Abraham. He met Abraham. And yet Melchizedek was a priest of God. Or in Genesis chapter 20, we have the uh, king of one of these small Canaanite clans, King Abimelech, uh, to whom God uh, speaks in a dream. And God preserves him from sin. He preserves him from the sin of adultery, of uh, marrying Sarah. Whom Abraham had lied about, saying that she was his sister, so that Abimelech took her to be his wife, and God prevented him because God didn't want Abimelech to fall into this sin. Here we have examples of people who are non Jews in the Old Testament that seem to be rightly related to God. Now, one might say, well, but perhaps God offered them special revelations. Of a different sort. They clearly didn't have the scriptures, right? But maybe they had dreams as Abimelech did or special revelations. Well, that's possible, I I think. We just don't know for sure. But I think it is at least suggestive that a person um, who is not Jewish, but who does properly respond to the revelation and the light that God has given him can thereby access a saving knowledge of God and God could apply to him the benefits of Christ's death. So I think what Cottrell says is correct, namely that through a positive response to general revelation a person can avoid condemnation but, as Cottrell points out, scarcely anybody does so. The sad fact of the matter is that the mass of humanity Do not respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, and so find themselves condemned before God. This is what Paul indicates in uh, Romans chapter 1, um, verses 20 and following. Uh, Three times in the passage, he says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Uh, And then describes how they were filled with all manner of immorality and disobedience. And in verse 32 he says, Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them but approve those who practice them. So the picture here is not a cheery one. Um, I, I, I think that uh, we could say that through general revelation it is possible to avoid condemnation. Uh, no one is going to hell simply because he was born at a time and place in history where he failed to hear the gospel. Uh, there is salvation accessible for that person. But unfortunately, uh, few apparently seem to actually access salvation in that way. So my my second point here in the functions of general revelation is to say that it does render people culpable before God, but then thirdly, it can provide access to salvation. Not that it does provide salvation to many, but there is access there at least. There's fairness um, on God's part. Any comment or discussion about that function of general revelation? Yes. So I guess it would follow that even today, where so mm. many have heard of Christ but many have not, Yes they could avoid uh, condemnation through response to the revelation that they have received in nature is that is that a true statement I think that is true Tom that would be my my view I, it doesn't it seems to me that the switch from the old covenant to the new covenant doesn't occur instantaneously worldwide when Jesus died on the cross for example rather this transformation progresses geographically as the gospel spreads throughout the world. So people who are still living, say, in central China or northern Siberia where they have no access to the gospel whatsoever in effect still find themselves in the condition that these pre-Christian persons did before Christ came and they would be judged on that sort of basis there's probably around 15 to 25 percent of the world's population that is yet to hear the gospel for the first time, and so there still are people that find themselves in this, um, so to speak, pre-Christian era. What, what about folks who have heard of Christ but have heard only a distorted uh, yes. view of Christ?
1: Where would and they fit you here?
0: Think? I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Tom. In Latin America, for example, the Christo paganism that is dominant in many of these latin countries a kind of syncretism between roman catholicism and pre-christian pagan uh, superstition is a distorted and twisted image of christ and when a person rejects that he's not really rejecting the gospel he's not rejecting christ but something else so i would say in cases like that god is loving He is fair, and we can trust him to judge that person on the basis of his response to the light that he did have. And at least these persons have the light of general revelation in nature and conscience.
2: Yes? Thanks, Bill. What you're describing sounds a lot like the Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith, and I'm not sure that now that we have the revelation, the special revelation that Christ gave us when he came, that we can then compare ourselves to the Old Testament saints like Noah and the others that, mm-hmm. that Melchizedek and the others that, that you've identified, because now the world has, God has revealed himself to, yeah. to the world right. through Jesus Christ. So, so the question, Kevin, for, for us is,
0: did that transition occur Worldwide, instantaneously, like the flip of a switch, or is it a transition that occurs gradually as the gospel expands geographically? And it seems to me that the latter makes more sense. These persons have never heard of Christ, the ones we're talking about, and so they find themselves in a situation that is not qualitatively different from the people who were chronologically prior to Christ, even though, as you say, Christ has come, God has revealed himself in a special way and in the Scriptures now, but they haven't got the Scriptures, they've never heard of Christ, Um, and so at least in a qualitative sense it seems like they are more like the people
2: who existed before Christ came than those after. I hear what you're saying, uh, I'm, I'm also thinking about like Romans 10, just further down in Romans verse 13, where it says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes. And then it's addressed, well, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And it goes on, and, and the answer is, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Yes. That's where evangelism comes in. Yeah. That's why Philip had to go and explain to the Ethiopian eunuch what he was reading. Yes. Uh, that's why, Otherwise, it would not be necessary for Philip to have done that.
0: Well now now remember what i said is that even if this is possible very few do in fact access salvation in this way the mass of humanity is described in Romans 1 as lost in sin and therefore as you say desperately in need of hearing the gospel the gospel communicates the saving knowledge of god with a clarity and power that general revelation cannot do. and So it will be far more effective in bringing people to salvation than just leaving them to languish in spiritual darkness with only general revelation to, to go by. So yes, Romans 10 is, is right. We, they desperately need to hear the gospel to be, if they are going to be saved.
2: Okay, I'll just, I'll just close by saying, okay. I, I guess my personal belief is that if someone is responding to general revelation and they are truly seeking, then God will supernaturally, if necessary, provide the special revelation of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, to them.
0: Okay, do, do you understand the view that Kevin's expressed? He's saying that if a person were to respond positively to general revelation, then God will bring him more light. He will bring him a dream, or he will bring him a missionary or a gospel track. And if he responds to that, God will bring him more light. So there are a number of different ways of dealing with the problem of the unevangelized, and that would be one of them. I think we'll come back to this problem later on when we talk about the problem of Christian particularism. That is to say, how can salvation be only through Christ? Isn't this some way unfair or unloving? To those who never get the chance to hear about Christ. So we'll revisit this question. George. Uh, Bill, would possible examples of response to general revelation leading to salvation be um, on Paul's second missionary journey, uh, Acts chapter 10, that wasn't a missionary journey, but uh, before that, um, when Cornelius yes. responded to what he knew and he was sent, Peter came to him. Uh, it said he was. Uh, he was. His family feared God and he was praying, and then he, uh, Peter came and presented to him the Gospel. And then another example might be, and this was on a missionary journey, uh, Lydia in Philippi. Uh, she heard Paul uh, at the river and it says that she um, worshipped God, and then Paul yes. explained to her the Gospel and she responded. Yes, these are great examples, George, I think, of what Kevin was talking about in Acts 10, um, living in uh, Caesarea, is this Cornelius who is a, a centurion, part of a Roman cohort, and yet he's described as a God-fearer. He believed in the God of Jewish monotheism, but he wasn't a Christian yet. But God knew that Cornelius was someone who would respond to the gospel, and so he sends Peter to him, and lo and behold, the gospel uh, is received and the Holy Spirit bestowed on the Gentiles. So that's a perfect example of where God uh, uh, does exactly what Kevin was
1: imagining. Um, yes, Jim. Bill, it seems to me, in reading Romans one, that general revelations applies to today also, because the the atheist and the uh, deniers are the evolutionist. They they're denying God in that they're denying that He created all of these things. Therefore, when they deny God, then they have it follows that they deny Jesus also. I mean, if they deny that God created, they're denying that that uh, everything else that follows. I mean, sure. if, if you deny the the basic scriptures or the basic uh, if you deny that god created things and that all the beauty of the world and all the the living creatures if he if he didn't create anything then you're denying what, what you don't go any beyond that
0: so, yeah that's, I think that's exactly right if there is no god then obviously he doesn't have a son right, right? so uh the description in Romans 1 is very apt for um contemporary atheism in certain respects, perhaps not the polytheism, but certainly in the denial of the Creator, uh, thinking that there is no Creator behind the world that we perceive, and also I think in rejecting the moral law. Many naturalists would see moral obligations as just societal conventions that have been ingrained into us by parental and societal conditioning, but they're not really objective. So Romans, the opening chapters of Romans, I think, are very applicable to the contemporary situation. Yeah, Bruce, I'm with Kevin on this uh, on, on these uh, revelatory uh, instances, and mm-hmm. sometimes missionaries will have this, where they'll come and see people that are completely countercultural and and really being persecuted in their context because they they have a vision of of God that's different than. What's going on around them, but even if you take uh, Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, I, I think is some form is, is a form of theophany uh, because you know it says he paid tithes to him and he says and Hebrews tells us Melchizedek had no beg- father mother no beginning of days but yeah. was like the son of God so clearly he's something different than a an human maybe being. I mean what Bruce is referring to is the description of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews which is very different from what you read in Genesis. And the question there, I think, Bruce, is when he says he is without father or mother or genealogy and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, does he literally mean that Melchizedek is an eternal person that has existed forever? Some would say yes, he's Christ. He's Christ, pre incarnate Christ. But it just may be that what the author means is that his genealogy isn't listed in the narrative. He has no description of his beginning of days, end of life, uh, mother or father. It you know, doesn't say he was the son of the son of the son of. Um, so, in that case, it, it's not what one might think with regard to his divinity. Yes, uh, Cindy here and then T1.
3: This may be just a slight variation, but it seems to me one of the purposes of general revelation is to sort of. Pave the way, if you will, for accepting something, a saving understanding. In other words, you know, if you really ponder and you really are open and you really assess the world around us and the creation, there's a logical leading toward a creator. It's just sort of a natural... um, Evolution, if you will, sorry for the word, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and to follow that, there would have to be with the balance of life and, and the understanding of how uh, fragile it is and what kind of environment would be required. Yeah. And for these, the world to exist and, and, and even the universe of that description, it, it seems to me then the mind and the heart becomes more open to carry you the next level or Mm -hmm. the next step. And I think either through God bringing some instrument into your life or your your acceptance of a, a creator, in your own mind you're then in discussion with and I think open to um An understanding of salvation
0: yeah you know cindy i, I don 't know how I could have overlooked this point i'm 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 almost embarrassed, of course you 're right about that um, The book of Hebrews said, he who would come to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, so one of the purposes of general revelation is to fulfill that first condition, believe that God exists so you're right, this is a, a preparatio evangelicum. It's the preparation for the gospel um, to make people disposed to believe the gospel when it comes. Let me just say one more thing before we close, because I like to end uh, on the joints rather than or carve at the joints rather than um, in the middle. And and that is the fourth function of general revelation would be its function in stabilizing human society. Stabilizing Human Society. and The notion here is that God's general moral law is written on the hearts of all persons and this serves then to allow human society to exist and function in a stable way instead of being every man for himself, the sort of madhouse option. You have here a kind of mutual agreement about the worth of human persons. Um, and getting along in society and functioning well. So general revelation would also have the stabilizing effect, I think, upon human culture and society. Taiwan, do you?
4: Yes, I think um, since China has a lot of great philosophers and it comes down to whether their conscience is one of the the fear of the heaven yes. uh, abstract like concept uh, or one um, you can you can kind of divide all humanity into a obedient or rebellious conscience and so those obedient uh, conscience will eventually seek out truth and will never reject Jesus if mm-hmm when they heard the gospel. But um, the other side um, it will will uh, stand against it. So that's why Jesus come as a dividing factor. And then the gospel comes basically divide the two and allow the obedient have a tool to use as a um, converting and second chance and redemptive um, yeah. um That's very helpful, Taiwan. especially with regard to this
0: last point that I just made about stabilizing human society. In Confucianism or pre-communist Chinese society there was this idea of the sort of abstraction heaven which is a kind of vague divinity concept or something. But the problem is now in the post-Marxist era uh, that's been sort of lost Uh, in materialism and atheism with Marxism. So when Jan and I were at Fudan University at a conference of philosophers there, the Chinese philosophers, not the Americans, the Chinese philosophers were saying, Confucianism is dead, Marxism has nothing to offer. If modern China is to go forward with a social fabric for our society, that will make it function and cohere. We need Christianity to provide that moral fabric for society. And they said we shouldn't be afraid to embrace this because Christianity is an indigenous Chinese religion. It has been here for centuries, and uh, and they were freely advocating uh, Christianity precisely for this fourth reason, which I thought was just mind-boggling. All right, well, that completes our lesson for today. Next time we'll ask the question, is perceiving God through general revelation a matter of inferring God's existence? Is it an argument for God's existence? Or is it some sort of insight where you simply see that God exists via his revelation? The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.